Hello, I'm Richard Gillis and you're listening to the Unofficial Partner Podcast. This week's guest is Charlie Sale, the Daily Mail's longtime sports news columnist. Here we are, Charlie, at uh, Shea Sale. Mm-hmm. Nice of you to come. Leafy bit of healing, very nice. How are you? Yeah, I'm fine. I'm fine. Just that uh, the illness I had uh, wasn't really con- keeping healthy after it. Wasn't really conducive with carrying on sort of quite heavy workload at the, the Daily Mail. So. What, what was it? What was, what was the problem? Well, I had autoimmune hepatitis, which basically your body attacks, attacks yourself inside. So, I mean, you don't know when it's going to come back again. Hopefully it won't. But it's pretty serious when it did. And... All I can do is sort of um, live a bit healthier than being out on the road. What does uh, that mean? On a, you know, what do you, how do you well, mean? eat properly, which I never did. Um, that's the main thing. Drink was not, wasn't really the problem, but I was very overweight. I certainly lost three stone Blimey. and um, much more careful about what I eat. And obviously don't drink as much as, but um, you know, just limit the drink as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, you're looking well. Yeah, I feel, feel fine, obviously. <laughs> when, you, when you haven't got this sort of daily worry of a column, it's um, stress levels go down and uh, whatever. So when I said to people, I've said to people on sort of DMing on Twitter and, and across WhatsApp, and I said, no, I'm interviewing Charlie Sale. And the response was really interesting. There's a lot of your old sort of sports lobby, news lobby colleagues and I've got that I said what would you ask Charlie and they mm. gave me a few questions so I thought <laughs> we'll throw those in and then a few people from the other side the sort mm. of industry side mm. and it was interesting that you know there is a level of of blimey you know Charlie there was a there was, there was always that Charlie's in the room Charlie's at the conference Charlie's you know so there was that sort of uh, mix of respect and fear that they used, that used to carry as he went around the place just take us back you're at Loughborough yeah yeah and you at Loughborough Co? Yeah, you said was on my same course as, as me, Economic and Social History. We uh, Actually, normally when you start, I don't know if you heard the story, I've told it enough times, but I'll tell it again. But normally when you go to places, you sort of t- people on your course are the first people you sort of go out with and stuff. So you're, the Economic and Social History, so first it was a, it was, it was a Loughborough um, Freshers Ball. I think it was Gary Glitter. Was, was playing with you. Different, different, well, times, different times. Different times, different times. I don't think he'd be playing in the, this year's uh, Loughborough's Freshers Ball. So we agreed to uh, meet in the town and, and then go up and watch Gary Glitter. So we, everyone met in town and had a few drinks. We are going up, there was no Seb Co. And we were wondering, why, why didn't he turn up? Suddenly saw this figure in a tracksuit running around the perimeter. Bear in mind, this was 1975. It got closer and it saw it was Seb, Seb. I said, what are you doing? You're supposed to come out for a drink. He said, oh, I'm training for the Olympics. So I thought he was a nutter or something. So I sort of shouted some abuse at him <laughs> as, he, as, as he ran in the distance. It was only a few weeks later. I was reading, in fact, the local paper and I found out that, that he was actually a proper proper athlete. So and he was, was and he, I apologised. Was to, he famous to, at that point? No, no, no. Not on a national scale. He was a sort of promising uh, up-and-coming athlete. Because he sort of put... I would associate him with Loughborough, actually. He was the first time I'd sort of positioned Loughborough in my imagination as the sports sort of centre and sports university. Yeah, but in fact, we were both at, on the uh, economic... It was a college and a university, pretty top college of education and a pretty ordinary university. And 
those of us who are sort of underclubbed on our A-levels ended up at Loughborough. And so, but during our time it merged, so it became a sort of, um, sort of sporting powerhouse, but nothing to do with me. <laughs> what, what was he like, though? Um, well, I didn't know him that well at the time. He was, he was a good bloke, yeah. I could tell some stories, which I'm not going to tell. Okay. I mean, obviously, over the years, you were in his orbit. Yeah, no, very much so. I mean, I remain sort of very good friends with him. In fact, I've always... In fact, Seb's one of the few people who had sort of diplomatic immunity from sports agenda until until the only time I did thing, when he took a long time to... Um, um, Nike, you know, the Nike story, when he became chairman of the... Um, <clears throat> the athletics, the uh, IAAF, yeah. uh, and he didn't relinquish his Nike sponsor. I thought that was he should have done that far earlier than he did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And just before we get going on the sports agenda stuff, so cricket, there is a fantastic clip. Scott Bauer sent me this. 75 Wisdom with you, Repton School versus Mount Malvern College. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was ni- actually 1974. And, oh, it's 75, uh, it's 75 uh, Wisdom. Yes, that's right. right. But uh, I set um, what still is the or set played the longest, slowest innings of all time. Um, <laughs> it was, you know, with one not out in the two and a half hours of fifty-eight overs, which is very difficult to do. Overs. Fifty-eight overs. Yeah, I don't know. Morven, Repton, Morven were big sort of rivals, and um, Repton had three good batters uh, and uh, four good batters, or three top batters. And they were all out in the first and second overs. And I went to number five. And Morvan already set a massive score. So we had no chance of winning. So I was, went in 32 minutes before tea and two hours after tea. Just blocked it, really. <laughs> we got the draw. So. <laughs> and your dad was a good cricketer. He was yeah, I know he was. Yeah, yeah, he was, yeah. Yeah. Did Ian Bell? Is it right? Ian Bell broke his record. <laughs> so, Ian Bell. Ian Bell. Well, you're well informed. Ian Bell broke my father's record uh, for the youngest guy ever to make a hundred for Warwickshire. I think eighteen. My dad made a hundred for Warwickshire in thirty-eight, and uh, eighteen something. And Ian Bell was the same age a few days earlier. And I remember many. Obviously, one of the few occasions when the press it was a Johannesburg. It was one of the few, after a test match victory, it was one of the few occasions when the press and the players were in the same bar and sort of mingling together. So I wondered whether to, you know, I was obviously very proud of my dad's record, still am, and uh, I wondered whether to approach Ian Bell and sort of tell him, the, you know, what his reaction would be. So, OK, nothing lost. So I did. He, he couldn't have been less interested. <laughs> so ever since then, I've slated him at every possible opportunity. <laughs> um... So let's, let's let's talk about the journalism career. You were on the Acton Gazette, you yeah. just told me. That yeah. was and that was your was that the sort of early that's your grounding. That's yeah, that's so after you, after Loughborough, I joined the Acton Gazette. Um, I should have been sacked, and I think in the second week because I was on police calls, and yeah, I couldn't be bothered. I was only really interested in sport and just just as way only interested in doing sports stories. Uh, but I was down for police calls, so. Uh, I didn't, I didn't bother doing it. So, so on Monday I went in, so nothing happened the weekend. I said, what, nothing happened? Some uh, shop, uh, some uh, uh, woman who ran a sweet shop had been murdered on my, <laughs> down the road. So, so I was very lucky, I was very lucky to survive that, I must admit. So what was the, where you went from there to, was it, did you go to Express? No, I went to the Northern Echo um, in Darlington for a year. And then onto the mail on Sunday as a sort of freelance, 
um, and then on to the Daily Express in uh, 83 on the staff in and 83. And what, when you were on the desk at that point? Uh, uh, yeah, I was just a sports sub, yeah, on the desk. And uh, I, I came a sports news editor, I think, I come in around 87. That's when I started a column in 87. So from 87 to 97, I did a sort of sports agenda style column once a week. Which is a sort of great grounding because obviously we built up a load of contacts. Yeah, yeah. So then when the sort of various things changed and I uh, sort of went out on the road, I was, you know, I started doing a daily column in 97, but I had a sort of 10 year build up. So I had a, already had a lot of contacts and in the sports business, that type of yeah, yeah. thing. So that's how that happened. And I sort what? of started that and column in 97. So you took the column from the Express to the Mail, yeah. For, the same uh, name, for, the same brand? No, it was, sport, it was called Sports Scope on the Express. And sports agenda on the mail. Right. What were the big stories at that point? You'd have been Sydney Olympics coming out yeah. back to Sydney Olympics. I yeah, guess. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> everything, but I mean, don't necessarily remember the sort of big events as much as uh, what you had for dinner one day or <laughs> a good night out. What was your What was your general approach? Because just the sheer. I mean, there's, there's a few people saying you know the hardest working man in sports journalism, Owen Gibson, um, said that you know just enormous output and. Um, well, it's nice for Owen, who's a top, top journalist. Talking about Owen, who's, who's now heading for the heights. He's a, he is, surely he'll be the next Guardian editor. Do you think? Yeah. Well, it must be all one after that. But I've known about Owen when he joined the sports business, um, sort of, not sports, you know, sports news lobby type of thing. You think, oh, he'd take a, you know, it'd take a couple of years before he gets up to, I think it him about a couple of days before he was more across most of the subjects than we were. Because there was a few people that, that, I mean, the Guardian had a go, they had the Digger column, didn't they, for a yeah, while? Yeah, Matt Scott, yeah. Matt Scott, and yeah. then Kelso, took, Paul Kelso yes. took it over, yes. and then, and that sort of died away. Yours yours was always, it felt like the one that they were trying to do a version of. Is that, was that your perspective? Yeah, possibly, but I was lucky the fact that the Mail had a lot of resources, and I went to every event, and I could concentrate on the column, I mean, um, which was... Um, you know, put me at a big advantage. And also, I had had, even then, I had sort of 12, 15 years when I went to, you know, on that, doing those type of stories anyway. So I had a long run in. So what, was, it, what was your process? Because it is a, it is relentless, a daily. Well, yeah, start at nine o'clock and just, you know, make sure I, at nine o'clock, I'd sort of read all the papers and was ready to work at nine, start bashing the phones, really. Just doorstepping yeah pretty relentless yeah I mean I know you know as you know the way the, the news goes you can't really keep anything back because it never works if you keep something back it could be fresh and basically most days it's a blank piece of paper but I knew if I worked hard enough but by seven o'clock or yeah around so I'd have something that works because some of it was very very sports business yeah. You know, oriented wasn't it? The mail is obviously a, is a broad sort of monster of a of a. It's an interesting point. I mean, luckily, because of the way the sort of pint-sized things that sports news normally, if you are if you sort of had trouble even since I left, that if they sort of present a, a story to the desk, oh, I'm not interested. In that's boring. But if you sort of write it in two paragraphs with a sort of bit of twist on it or a bit of a edge on it. Suddenly, a boring sport. Well, I don't think sports business stories are boring, but what the reader might think is, or the news desk might think is boring, you can present it in such a way, personalise it, that hopefully it becomes less boring. Yeah, well, it's always yeah. like a sort of early version of a blog, I thought, when you, when you read it. It's always that sort of. You yeah, know, you're trying. Well, yeah, you try and keep the personality part, yeah, keep my own personality in it. So, um, 
it becomes more readable or more interesting to write than just a straightforward. Well, it wouldn't work as a, just a straightforward. You had to have an edge, that type of column, otherwise it doesn't yeah. doesn't work. John Tibbs. John. John Tibbs. Of the, uh, yeah, John Tibbs. World. Yeah. Well, yeah, John Tibbs. Every time he, he was sort of or ever present to all these uh, um, bids. I remember vividly when he at uh, I think it was 2012. Literally minutes after France had lost, uh, who Tibbs had been sort of absolutely fighting for tooth and nail for the last four years. Suddenly his lapel was, I think Jordan was on his lapel, literally minutes after the, the vote had been cast. Yeah, top, yeah, absolutely shameless. Top, top man. Top man. He, was, he's, he was asking how many, questions, how many stories got spiked? You, you must have been in the legal... The, the yeah, oh yeah, 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 yeah. But I mean, quite a lot got spiked, which is really annoying. When spiked by the lawyers, it's an old word, spike, isn't it? When you put the yeah. copy down on, you're too young to remember that. Um, yes, but um, no, I think you. Don't want to know it. So yeah, but the Daily Mail. I was lucky again. The Daily Mail lawyers were great. In fact, they because they're sort of journalist based. They wouldn't think like, oh God, this is too risky they would fight for the journalists I mean also amazingly sort of supportive I remember looking at the cuts once uh, two or three years later after it happened that Daily Mail had paid out £20,000 to Peter Kenyon for a libel in the Daily Mail I thought what? I thought you know Blackburn I some story about um, Chelsea and it was me it's my libel and they hadn't even told me about it they just paid up you'd think that I get a letter saying, you have a care next time. You know, we're still very supportive, <laughs> but you just cost us £20,000. Have a care. But they didn't even tell me about it. And I was banged to write libel. It was bad journalism because I got a story from uh, about Peter Kent. I, I wrote a story that uh, a Chelsea executive said he'd been sacked um, because his girlfriend or partner didn't get on with Peter Kenyon's girlfriend or partner. Had a sort of cat fight, which I wrote, but I mean, stupidly, I why did I ask Kenyon for his side of the story? So I was bagged to rights. You know, I should have been reprimanded by the paper, but they just paid up 20 grand and didn't find out for about five years. One of the, one of the, the, the themes of, of people asking was the, was the how that relationship between journalists and PRs has changed over the course of your, you know... Yeah, I mean, when I started, there weren't, there weren't any... There weren't any... No football club had a PR. I remember... if. Um, Almost the first one was Graham Taylor's um, PR. It was basically the first time somebody had them. So I've seen that whole lot go. I mean, it's ridiculous. I mean, the PRs, they started, the idea of them was to help the journalists, but they've just been, you know, they've just turned out now that it's completely opposite, that they're another level of security or to get past, to speak to player. Now, no young journalist can build up a relationship with the player. It has to be with the the club's PR guy, yeah, which is ridiculous. It's almost like a sort of, I think Alistair Campbell had an influence on the way in which PRs generally saw themselves. So you sort of saw a rise of that type of the, the, the director of communications who... Yeah, don't talk to about Alistair Campbell, he's an appalling individual, hates the Daily Mail, awful bloke, don't want anything to do with him, <laughs> if you don't mind me saying that, I'm allowed <laughs> to say that, the... awful bloke. How is he on the Lions talk? Well, it was terrible, wasn't it? I didn't actually go on that line at all. That was, that was Clive Woodward's appointment. It was an appalling appointment. One of the players took his trousers down to the highlight of the tour. But why? Why Clive needed Alistair Campbell? He knew nothing about... He knows a bit about Burnley, but that's it. That's his sporting knowledge. 
pretends to be a sports... He sort of reinvented himself as a sporting expert. He knows nothing. The story... This is Ziegler asking this question. Well, the story you're most proud of? Well, it's not a matter of being most proud of any particular story. I mean, because of the nature of the job is... I'm most proud of the fact that I wrote the column for all those years. It was never... It went to the paper every day. Um, nobody ever said, oh, that's just not good enough. I'm uh, far more proud of that than one particular story. I mean, and also the nature of the column meant if I got a really good story, perhaps I didn't, you know, I was so concerned about the column coming first. I, I underplayed the story or didn't develop it enough. So I wrote it and then other people may have developed, developed the story for me rather than sort of present it all bells and whistles. Because um, if, you if you've got a story, that's it. Right, you really work on that story and it's a double page spread, back page. You know, but my, my, my sort of approach was, oh, that, good, that's one story for the column that day. Quite often the paper said, oh, that's too good to go in the column, which I felt was a bit, I didn't like, really like people saying that. So I got them then to start on the back page and turn it into the column because the column was sort of my defining thing. So, so you didn't want to a, do a, a good story and then have to write another one to fill the column whilst well, it's, it's, it's Correct, correct. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I don't mind then if it started on the back and turned into the column. I do want to start again. Occasionally it did. So um, the sports says, oh, this is far too good for the column, which is... Well, what, yeah. what am I doing? Here? Yeah, yeah. One question again I've got from uh, Ziegler is why can't the Premier League find a CEO? What's going on there? What, you, you would love to know. <laughs> well, Martin's the best informed sports news journalist out there. Terrific, He's absolutely brilliant journalist. Every time I went mid Kelso, every time we went to a FIFA or UEFA event, we wanted to be either side of Martin because then we felt that uh, we were all right because his knowledge is sensational. He's a brilliant journalist and a great, a great friend of mine. And, Somebody who I highly respect, both and, as a person and as a journalist. And yet he still doesn't know about the Premier League. <laughs> well, the Premier League's interesting. I think um, Richard Scudamore went because he saw, people who listen to this podcast will remember sort of the, the, the start of the Big Six, which was um, Chinese rights deal, when in the middle of the deal, Big Six clubs got together in the middle of a Premier League meeting and discussed, did it suit them? I mean, obviously, Scudamore was incandescent. You know, this is a, the whole thing, as, as you well know, Premier League's been built on 20 clubs, and here was the six of them organising a sort of meeting within the meeting, trying to think it suited them. And that's basically, Scudamore saw that was the beginning. This was only going one way. And Ferran, the guy at City, he can't understand shared right. He just comes from Barcelona. You know, obviously, Brazil and uh, Brazil, Barcelona and Madrid have their own deals. Can't understand the collective. Can't get around his head how Huddersfield can get as much money as Man City from TV rights, from overseas TV rights. It's just, just, just cannot cope with it. And that's the way it's going. I'm, I'm sure Scudamore realised. And I think since then, the the, the lady they had, um, um, yeah, fixed up. I know she had a meeting with the Big Six before, as if to say, you know, as if they were interviewing her. And I think she thought. Yeah, I think she's a highly paid at where she is. Probably good decent. She doesn't want any of this. You know, but it's so you've got twenty people. I mean, Scudamore's great um, triumph for so long. He kept, he kept the collective, um, and obviously you have the six. You know, what, what, you know, obviously the clubs that come up want the collective, and the big six don't, and some in between. But surely the beauty of the press, so, so, so greedy these clubs. And the money goes to the players. I mean, can't they see that the glory of the Premier League is sort of Leicester winning it? And 
other people not every you know every year the same old same old I have a feeling it might be the same old same old for the next two or three seasons since I've been involved and this is uh, this is two, late 90s 2000 yeah. um, the European breakaway league has been the sort of overarching story that you, yeah. get, you know you get Once, told at bars yeah. and conferences well, uh, and people nudge you and mm. say you know have you heard have you heard but is that going to happen do you think well I think UEFA have done their best I mean the Champions League is plenty of money isn't it I mean it's that's what they eventually want, don't they? Every of these clubs, certainly, they want a, a Champions League played every week. But it doesn't suit the English clubs. We've got a brilliant, we've got a better league than them anyway. The Premier League and the rivalries are fantastic, aren't they? Mm. Uh, I mean, going, going off, I can't see like the. Sorry to go yeah, for the definitely. tangent, but you have got the hundred. Yeah. Okay, but you know they're trying to new names. I mean, even the county cricket names—they're great names. Should I to, just pour money into that? Keep the Warwickshire, Derbyshire, uh, Leicestershire, whatever. You rather have fancy new names. I mean, even when the Premier League started, it was the same clubs, just well, re, well, well, um, well packaged. Yeah, so we've got great in this country. Those other, uh, no wonder the other clubs, uh, major teams in Europe, because their leagues can't compare, can they? I mean, none of them could compare. Mm. Mainly German, not even that really. Same old teams always win. So that's what they're all going for. But hopefully, the Premier League will think, uh, you know keep that at bay but I'm sure one day we'll, we'll get to that but hopefully many years in the future I remember this is going back a long time ago me and you you, you might not remember this but we're in um, a cellar with in Germany in I think it was Munich with the Kirsch lot do you know oh, yeah. that? Do yeah, you know I that? Do. Yeah, there yeah. was a load of sort of it was uh, Gunter Netzer was there yeah I remember it was a nice meal we had yeah. Yeah, we had a very nice meal wasn't it and then yeah. there was, a, there was a, it was all very sort of FIFA and Kirsch it was the back yeah. of that ISL time yeah. you know when because yeah, yeah. it fascinates me the FIFA politics mm. thing and we're seeing it now well, what, what's your how has that evolved well has I mean it, that's probably been the biggest sort of running story of the sports news over the 20 years with FIFA utterly corrupt utterly corrupt I mean it's uh, outrageous. I mean, it's the same with all sports people. I mean, Bl- Blatter just wanted to stay in power. I don't think he personally was particularly uh, um, so obsessed with money. He just loved his position and he knew the best way of keeping position was to keep all these crooks around the table. I mean, it's, it's just unbelievable what's happened there. They, they just wanted their own... I mean, the, how much money they made. Jack Warner, Chuck Blazer. I mean, Jack Warner can't leave Trinidad, I don't think, but... Um, Funny enough, it took the Americans to do something about it when they they realised that the twenty twenty two was a hooky hooky election. So it needed them to start to doing. Does it make you angry? Did it always make you angry the, 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 when you saw sports administrators or the people in charge of governing bodies? It didn't make me angry at all. I just love the story. I don't want angry about it. Yeah, just you not like a good get, story. Yeah, you, 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 these are people who are profiting from sport. That was always a. A classic Charlie Sale story. Yeah, the yeah, yeah. I, probably angry is the wrong word. I, I like the, you know, I like crooks and defeats and badness. And <laughs> it's more interesting than glory, glory, isn't it? When you're writing about it, I think. But, um, so I'm lucky in my time in journalism that England have been generally be more stories about doom and gloom than glory, glory. Tom Peck. Tom Peck. Tom Peck. Remembers he uh, he said he fell out with you, well you you fell out with him in Marrakesh about yeah. a tweet about the Daily Mail was swimming in Blatter's swimming pool. I remember that, but yeah, well, Tom Peck was a very nice guy and is a very good uh, sketch writer. I think 
now. Yeah, Political he's right. Down yeah. the world, isn't he? Well, no, say that. He's, he's gone, gone up. Sport. Absolutely, he's gone up in the world. Uh, he was. A, he went to that show. He was relatively new on the sports news. He was obsessed with where everyone was staying because I think the Independent put him in some sort of in the middle of the soup. There, it was like ten p a night to stay on the floor of a shop or somewhere before the traders came in. Literally, he was paid one pound a head. So he was obsessed with the BBC and the and the Daily Mail was staying. So he spent all the time. Where are you staying? Where are you staying? Yeah, I was telling him to stay here, and the BBC was staying there. And eventually, he found out the, BB, the Daily Mail's comedy wasn't particularly lavish. We weren't staying in Blatter was staying at the best, the, the Churchill Hotel there, which uh, La, I forget the name, but it's a fantastic hotel. The Mail were just in a sort of bog standard, uh, whatever. And Peck decided this this was the best hotel going, and so put out this tweet saying. Um, <laughs> Only the Daily Mail um, swimming in Blatter's water. So I wasn't happy about that. I must have you know, did tell Peck. <laughs> you mentioned the hundred, and that's just to whack cricket then for a minute. Yeah. That's a that's a sort of it's a sport that is both uh, seen as conservative, but has been very radical. You know, twenty twenty being the obvious case study. And now we've got the hundred. You've got Tom Harrison in charge, ex IMG well, guy. Yeah. What do you make of this? What's your... Well, I don't think cricket has been radical. I mean, I think cricket, talk about the MCC and whatever, and they're a classic example, like almost like the FA and the RFU, of sort of people keeping in position because they love all the perks, self-perpetuating, so they then appoint other people in the same manner. And that's the trouble with all these sort of sports where sort of tradition, you know, with councillors and blazers, because what, what are they in it for? they their most important thing is keeping themselves in because they're treated so well. Their most important thing is keeping in power. Well, keeping the perks and the food and the drink. So you're in favour of a sort of Adam Crozier. You are. Know, Adam Crozier was a front of his time, but I mean, he, he was seen off as other other uh, Ian Watmore, yeah. plenty of them have been seen off by by the Blazers. Martin Glenn, to a certain extent, has been seen off. It'll take some time before it's gradually. It's not radical. It's not radical by any means. ECB and the hundred, uh, it's the worst PR of all time. Yeah. I mean, can you imagine, even after a terrible two years of bad PR, they have their launch uh, the other day and somebody tweets a picture of a crowd scene from a concert, a music concert in America. Yeah, I mean, fantastic. can you believe it? <laughs> and so, and the odd thing about it seems to me that they're sort of, Gathering around the, 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 the hundred, it's again to your point about you've got the counties, then you've yeah, got this other brand. Now they're almost creating things around grounds, they're almost asking people to cut, you know, that the, that's going to be the centre of gravity around which we go and support them. Well, together. yeah, they're trying looking for a, a, a new a, a new image. Uh, you know, they're trying to look for sort of uh, people who don't normally cover cricket, uh, watch cricket, watching this, yeah. um, which is dangerous. Why not take get new people, but also take the people who like cricket anyway. I mean, sure, the, the hundreds would be all right, because they're pouring so much money into it, so much buzz about it, that people will go, and it's on terrestrial TV. But this tournament, what does annoy me is that this tournament should be totally on terrestrial TV. It's so greedy, you know. That was When when they first started talking about the hundred, it was going to be on fully on terrestrial TV, and that would have made it sensationally uh, um, successful. Because putting it on Sky, people don't don't have access to Sky. 
And then people say, even so, football's the only sport that can get away with because it's everywhere and bars and clubs and people watch it can get away with um, even boxing, you know. People didn't recognise or Joe Calzaki when he did all his... You know, I don't think Joe Calzaki would be recognised when he went down the streets. Now, maybe he was sports personality of the year, so that gave him a bit more. But, I mean, you see what I'm trying yeah, to say? Yeah, yeah. And the 100 now is 10 games on Terrestrial, which will help, really help, but the rest on Sky. Not sure about that. Yeah. Um, what was the biggest fallout you had with a PR or, or administrator? Oh, well, <laughs> too, many, too many to mention. <laughs> but, I mean, my general default mode was to dislike the PR and before it started rather than sort of, and then go on from there uh, rather than that. that's why I hate being told uh, what I cannot cannot write I remember one effort one I won't necessarily mention a name but uh, one FIFA trip um, uh, Martin Glenn I found out Martin Glenn was going to was missing a, a UEFA the next UEFA Congress because he was going on a stag stag do to with a friend to New York meat and drinks type of stuff uh, I write about I don't know the FA PR saying you can't write that I said what you just watch me you know? <laughs> what do you think yeah uh, so no as I made the point that it's all sort of you can't do this you can't do that and all the I mean it's terrible how all, all the um, access is to so when there is access it's so that the uh, footballer or the cricketer can promote something themselves or it's controlled by them or they want copyright I mean it's and also more and more because of the way uh, digital's working out they, they when they want player wants to say something he does it on his own on his own Twitter feed or his own podcast his own online thing and like we do now, these podcasts are proving very popular, aren't they? That's awesome. Not necessarily this one, <laughs> especially after this interview. But as a genre, you know, Peter Crouch and sort of Joe Marler. Yeah. I can see why, why are you not doing a podcast, Charlie? Why are you, no. I'm not, not asking for competition in this very no. narrow market that we're, we're, we're treading. But, no. Uh, no. Um, on the control thing, um, actually, Owen Gibson had a funny one about, or he said, Asking about the embargo on the rugby world cup story. <laughs> um, oh yeah, the guard. <laughs> the, uh, rugby, yeah. But if Barney Francis told us a, uh, a story that um, it was a no, sports news lobby meeting with Barney Francis, and he sort of let slip or told us that um, the Etihad was going to be one of the grounds for the rugby world cup rather than Old Trafford. And so Owen and my, actually, no, it wasn't Owen. I think it's myself and Ashling. Um, and I can't remember whether Owen got the story or not. I don't think he did. I think we divvied Owen in on the story as a sports news sort of lobby about the story, which is a good story because I think Fergie had pulled the plug on uh, Old Trafford cause, uh, for the rugby because it would affect the pitch. Yeah. So three of us had the story and Owen went off on holiday. And he gave the story to another another um, guy on the Guardian, um, and then they broke the embargo and put it out. And I got a I got a, a phone call from the RFU saying this because saying oh, this story's already out in the Guardian. I said what? So I got the Guardian to take it down. I phoned up Owen on, on holiday and told him exactly what I thought of him. Perhaps I wouldn't now. Now he's the Guardian. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and a desert of the Guardian. <laughs> what about embargoes generally? I mean, there's sort of there is this. 
Well, tooth attack, do they ever work? Yes, yeah, so, well, absolutely, especially, yeah, of course they do. I mean, that's why, um, I'm sorry, digital, I, I remember Lee Clayton, who's an exceptionally brilliant journalist, when he was, yeah, um, yeah brilliant, brilliant journalist, when he was running um, the Mail Online, he said, oh, embargoes no longer exist now, because he wanted everything, no, I don't believe in embargoes. But obviously national newspapers have to have an embargo, otherwise, how can it work? You know, how can you protect something without an embargo? And certain, I mean, certain of the big England, you know, football, uh, rugby, cricket, you know, they, they work well with the national press still to make sure they've got some copy that isn't immediate. It, it feels like a sort of structure to, you know, that Lee's point presumably is, is news. Well, he wants everything, everything. Well, that's the way things are going, yeah. I mean, embargoes, here we are, I mean... But then you know that's less as newspapers you can't protect against yeah, yeah. the yeah. the sort of the sort of the ferocious beast that is tw- the twenty four hour media. But I mean, you always you always a bit reticent on Twitter for that reason, weren't you? In terms of just giving stories yeah, away on Twitter. Absolutely. Why should you? I mean, I can't. Twitter, Facebook, people sort of talk. About, I mean, so many celebrities on Facebook all the time. Instagram. You know, I won't name names, and I I follow them because it's fun. But I can't tell these people just um, just love it to be on it all the time. Well, um, another question that came from the uh, from someone in the sports news, and it was Owen again, I think, about. Because Owen had time, he must be guarded. Must be time, exactly. Sits around. No, he's not doing sports. Stories supporting Jeremy Corbyn. His point about just in terms of the nature of of news journalism and how hard it is to get stories and how mm. easy it is to be to do shallow stuff but actually mm. you know finding new stories mm. that's hard work mm. and the whole sort of thing about getting out from getting out of the office mm. and you were a very sort of obvious example of that and he was making that mm. point that you know you would you'd be everywhere mm. um that is i wonder if that's going to come back in a fashion i don't know because it's so easy just to sit on twitter and and just hoover up well, well again this goes back to the fact that you, you haven't got access to people, so I mean, how many stories do you read about Twitter? You know, a story uh, that's been instigated on Twitter, mm. derived on Twitter. Occasionally, I was guilty myself as a good spat between two people, but it's it's pretty shallow stuff, isn't it? And um, the, the the best thing is to go out there. I went to as many events as I was lucky enough to be able to send to because you know primary sources are the best. That's how. You, if somebody tells you a story, just you. I mean, you got the provided they don't tell somebody else. Then you got that story to yourself. That's how I took more and more. I what that's I knew how I had a story when it came from somebody, and you know, hopefully they weren't going to tell somebody else or well, not um, until I got it out. There was, there was a okay, John Tibbs again. This one, um, he this is a bit more punchy. An outlet he was did he think that the column was an outlet for people with grievances who and he aired them in terms of revenge and what were the ethics and. Of running those well, of course, over. <laughs> well, every story comes from agreements. Nobody speaks to somebody about any story unless they had an agenda. People don't tend to speak to journalists because they like them. Or it's, it's it's an outlet. Of course, we've fed all the times somebody's grievance. The more the merrier. Somebody has a grievance. Yeah, and tell me about it, or tell tell the Daily Mail about it. And then somebody somebody you, know, you ask the other person the other side. I'd say I, I hopefully I wasn't taken in. I was a, well, a few people, but. Hopefully, I wasn't taken in too much by just giving one side because that's the worst type of journalism. If you continually punt one person, you know, obviously they just come. People see through that pretty quickly. They say, oh, "Guys, always supporting that, always supporting that person." 
But a lot of people are you know, even the best of journalists. I mean, even Huey McIlvaney, um, you know, <coughs> he was always supportive of uh, Alex Ferguson, whenever. Mm. You know, whenever. Mm. You know, um, Alex Ferguson was you know, a brilliant guy. He also did plenty of things that perhaps needed reporting on that weren't so good. Yeah, yeah. Um, what about the, the, there's a, that feeling, I guess, I mean, one of the, 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 the let's talk about the feuds. So Brian Moore. Yeah. Brian. So where, why did that start? Where did that go from? Because that went on for a long time. Yeah, it probably still is, actually, Brian Moore. I mean, I'm very, I was very, very um, so humbled by the amount of people who said so nice things when I retired, and even Peter Alice. Yes, I was, I was going to mention him. Yeah. Blowed over by that. I mean, I mean, Peter Alice is one of the great broadcasters of all time, and I've written gratuitous things about him for years and years and years, you know. And he, he um, we never, you know, every time we saw each other, it was pretty bad. But then he wrote a fantastic note saying, he always liked the column and he wished me well, and I was really sort of taken aback. He said, uh, he said, oh, I know you never rated me. I said, blimey, of course I rate you on the greats of all time. Yeah. Um, so I was thinking, I don't think Brian Moore, actually I think Brian Moore might have said something via somebody about, you know, hope I got better. But I'm not quite sure. <laughs> His wife certainly didn't know. I fell out with her as well. Um, what did you fall out with her? Well, I wrote something about she was pregnant at Wimbledon. Uh, she was at Wimbledon in public and she was pregnant. Uh, heavily pregnant, and I wrote something about Brian Moore won't be able to write, commentate any gobbledygook or anything in the next few weeks because his wife is we're expecting twins soon, which uh, <laughs> pretty harmless. She complained to the paper and wrote on Twitter how how this is terrible and how I'd written about their children before they were born. I mean, come on. This is Belinda Moore. She now she's at the yeah. Mentor, she's, she's a, yeah. 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 Um, Good luck to her. Brian Moore, what, why, where did that start? Uh, I, mean, I, I was, I was uh, pretty sort of critical of Brian Moore's uh, commentary um, as co-commentator on rugby and, and his stuff at the Telegraph and the fact that he called himself a, a journalist. I said, you're not a journalist, you're somebody who played rugby, he's no, a pundit. And he wrote, a, uh, I think it was a hooker who got badly, amateur rugby player played in Brian Moore's position, who um, who got so badly injured that he went and um, uh, had a uh, killed him? Well, killed himself. Um, went to Switzerland for a what's the word? The dignitas, yeah, dignitas, yeah. dignitas death. And Brian Moore had access to the family. Wrote a very nice piece about it. And he got loads of compliments about this piece. So he he sent me a tweet saying, "Read this, see the compliments," and. Um, Never call me a, uh, a non-journalist again. UFC. Um, so ever since oh, that, was that? that was that really, and, and continued. <laughs> I mean, we had Blimey. He said, uh, "Oh yeah, he was going to knock my block off on numerous occasions." Also, just the we're gonna. Oh, someone come in the door. Um, just talk about the tributes because the tributes were. Hi. Uh, Sorry, we're, yeah, we're, we're taking over your kitchen table. We won't be long. Um, so the tributes were really fawesome. It, it, was, it was interesting the, the, when you announced yeah. that you were retiring. That well, was very moving. Unbelievable. I just couldn't believe it. Um, no, I couldn't believe it at all, actually. I mean, it was, um, 
In fact, my wife's coming. It's about three, I uh, put something out on Twitter saying oh, it was three hours of compliment after compliment after compliment. I was getting plenty. It went to my head. At the moment, until my wife said something, I'd missed. I'd done something wrong in the house or something. It sort of brought me back down to earth very quickly. But you were, and so people like Peter Alice, any others? Any? I mean, did the the great and the good? Do they? Well, Mourinho um, sent a, a nice, nice message. Plenty of David Dean came around the house. Um, you know, plenty of people. Wow. Um, no, I mean people from the FA. Uh, uh, Jack Pierce, um, Jeff Thompson still rings up every three or four weeks. Jack Pierce, the same. Loads of people see how I am, which is unbelievable. I'm feeling fine now, but um, it's good of them. No, I was, um, no, I was overwhelmed, really. I didn't really expect that at all. I mean, I only put out something on Twitter so that, because uh, a lot of people would say, well, why is he not in the paper? And, so and I was just wanting it to be out there so people knew. I, I wasn't looking. Uh, I didn't really actually know how Twitter worked. That, that I didn't realise that you could actually retweet with a load of compliments. So, but no, it's just uh, unreal, really. And just to finish off, what's your uh, looking back? You, you, what's your, your sort of feeling now in terms of where where sport is? And was it is it any different really? Has it fundamentally changed, or is it just more of the same? Sport or yeah. the newspaper business well, a bit or both, sport? A bit of both. Well, the newspaper business is right at this real flux. I mean, the way the digital is going, yeah. and the fact that new sort of online things can tempt the best journalists to join them is a sign that things are changing. How these things still at risk is uh, how they monetize the sites. This podcast, for instance, how yeah, they yeah, yeah. The best job. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, what's my fee, by the way? <laughs> um, <clears throat> Only check the um, so that that's a real right. That's that's a real position of uh, of change. Sports is getting bigger, isn't it? I mean, the events and the coverage. I mean, so, I mean this year, you know, football, the Champions League, those semi-finals were sensational. I mean, yeah. I mean even the, even the sort. Of, uh, that's what I love about sport. Of, uh, where I like the. So many outlets, whether it's talk sport or online or podcast, something like that. Joshua fight, yeah. you, you 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 miss it because overnight you just want to hear about it, and and it's just so what a story that was. You know, yeah, yeah. still going on. Um, so the outlets, I mean, just my only worry is that there should still be room for some investigative journalism in this new world. That's the thing you think. Now, I think now papers now, funnily enough. Um, of a spell of not doing it. And now there's a lot of really good journalists um, like Matt Lawton on our paper, of the Daily Mail, yeah. working on in, in, in that sphere. And that's great. And they're, they're the real stories. You know, obviously, in my view, the big sort of news stories like that tell you something. Because obviously, people report sports events and that's great. But uh, the game changers are the, sort of the big stories. You fancy writing a book? Uh, no, not about me. I mean, I might be doing a book about something, but yeah, it won't be about me. Any any little no, no, tidbits? no. About the book? Yeah. No, no, no. Because well, you are going to write a book. I am writing a book. Yeah. Oh, yeah, but but uh, it's um, it's not a retrospective. It's not no, a... no, 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 no. Nothing, nothing to do with me. Oh, interesting. Yeah, right. I'll tell you off the off the okay off the. Podcast. All right, well, uh, and I'll tweet about it. <laughs> yeah, well, I probably, yeah, I probably won't tell. Things work. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, I won't tell you. <laughs> right, Charlie Sale. Thank you very much for your time. Love that. Yeah. Yes.
is my dirty little secret. Apart from butt plug, obviously. Thank you.